from cell block 1138 aboard the Death Star, it's the DigiGuys. And now, please welcome one who's a little short for a stormtrooper and a Wookiee co-pilot that hates to be handcuffed, Mark Kaiser and Wade Major. I always love a good Star Wars reference, especially that one. Uh, Corey, what great listener sent that one in? Uh, that was sent in by Mario Mendez, but I do have to point out that Princess Leia was not in cell block 1138. She was in AA-23. They said that 1138 was where they were bringing Chewbacca from, but they were bluffing. Uh, huh? Mar- Did I say Mario Mendez? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mario. You gave Corey one of his... Well, you 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 tripped his uh you triggered him. You tripped his switch or something. Uh smart yes? how was your Oscar Sunday? Actually, I know how your Oscar Sunday was. It was because, like it was like other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, because, how was the play? Because at nine thirteen, at precisely nine thirteen, I got three texts in a row and they were in all caps, oh my God. Uh, you that know was... what? And you didn't respond to them. You <laughs> did not I, respond to them. I, you know what? I was on the phone. I was on the other line. I was I was in front of Facebook. There were like a million things happening. Yours yours was one of like 50 things that was all happening at once. And uh it was uh it was that was just that was outrageous. I mean outrageous. the it's you know, the the Oscars were always this Mount Olympus yeah. show. And now that's they'll have to really try to reclaim that if they ever can. I mean, <sighs> not that the Oscars will become a joke. They, they'll still be Mount so, Olympus down a peg. So here's so here's here's my rough take, and I, I'm actually preparing an article on this, which I don't know if anybody's going to run it, but I got to get it out. It's like you know, it's 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 therapeutic for me. Um, the uh, apart from the snafu at the end, which I think was really, really unfortunate in that it screwed the evening, it screwed what was otherwise a, a decent show. Not a great show, but a decent show. Kimmel did a good job. Um, could have done without the, you know, the mean tweets and the bringing the people in on the bus is kind the of people like were great. The mean tweets was not great. Yeah, because mean... he, he does that on his show all the time. But but that's the thing. The Oscars is the Oscars. His show is his show. You know, let's keep the two things separate. Like Carson never hosted the Oscars as if it was an extension of the Tonight Show. He didn't come out and say, and if all the fork in the road, there was, you know, he didn't do like, like, you know, Karnak uh, during the Oscars. It's a, it's a different thing. You know, and we need to understand that. So they need to separate the, those two things. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, and the people being using them as props, I'm not so keen on that. And it turns out one was a molester. And you never know. You, can, you can't vet the people, right? It's like a, it's, it's just a thing. Maybe they need intense vetting, right? Extreme vetting is that, is that the phrase? Extreme vetting. I think I think they should waterboard them to see whether <laughs> they simple. have anything in their past. So here's here's the thing. What's what's overlooked in all of this, and, and it's upsetting that Jenkins didn't actually get the, his proper best picture moment. It's upsetting that Emma Stone had instead of being asked questions about you know how happy are you, like she was sort of having to navigate the waters of you no, know, I I like Moonlight. And uh, no, I had the right envelope. You know, you know those. That's you, you ruined that moment for a lot of people. So apart from all of that, this is the second worst rated Oscars in history. It all it is almost as bad as two thousand eight, and two thousand eight was bad because the two films in competition, if you remember, were There Will Be Blood and No No Country for Old Men, two movies that no one had seen, and if you had seen them you would probably want to slit your wrists before you actually have to sit through them again, much less back-to-back. I mean, two very brooding, heavy, dark, depressing, but incredibly artful movies. 
So, so nobody watched the Oscars that year. Almost as few people watched this year, and our population is bigger. And the fourth worst rated Oscars was last year. So we've gone from the fourth worst to the second worst. This is a terrible trend line. Moving it to Sunday ain't working. Uh, shortening the Oscar season ain't working. Going with a cool host ain't working. And uh, going with more than five nominees ain't working. None of those things are fixing the, the lackluster interest in the Oscar cast. And the reason being, studios do not make Oscar-caliber movies anymore. Studios have completely abdicated that space. People have heard me say this on this show. And, uh, and I think this completely confirms it. When you're giving Oscars out to movies that are so much like the Spirit Awards that even the Spirit Awards had to make their requirements more constrictive just a few years ago. You remember this, when the Spirit Awards were like, okay, well, now since the Oscars look exactly like the Spirit Awards, we need to make our indies even more indie. So now you need to have a budget. And they they introduced this whole constraint of you couldn't have a budget of more than a certain amount, and you couldn't have this and that and the other thing. And so when the Oscars start to look like the Spirit Awards, and the Spirit Awards now have to look like the Slam Dance Awards, this is a bad trend line. We're going in the wrong direction. We're, we're going in the wrong direction. And I'm not really sure how to change that. I, I, I know there's going to be a lot of theories. You know, you, it's all about the host. It's all about uh, it's, nominating Rogue One for Best Picture would have solved it's everything. It's, but I don't think that's the issue. No, the issue is that, that studios need to do precisely what their parent companies don't want them doing, which is taking more risks, which is saying, you know what? Why did Summit get to make La La Land? Why didn't we make La La Land? Why? Why is it that uh, Lionsgate is making, uh, you know, the, uh, the the Hunger Games movies? Why didn't we get the Hunger Games movies? Why is, um, you know, why, for example, uh, did, did are the Weinstein's doing uh, uh, King's Speech? Why didn't we do the King's Speech? They need to be willing to take those risks. But they're not going to take those risks to win an Oscar. Well, you know, there there are ways of encouraging the studios to push back against their parent companies and say. The health of this industry depends on us having a sense of legitimacy with the with artists. There's, and I've told this to people who who talk about La La Land and jazz. La La Land is not about jazz. La La Land is about movies. Even the jazz stuff is about movies. Like when Ryan Gosling is talking to J.C. J.K. Simmons, and he says, um, "I thought this town operated on a you know one for you, one for me kind of thing. How about?" Two for you, one for me. How about all for you, none for me? Right? That was that crack. As funny as it is, is basically about the way that movies have gone. It used to be one for you and one for me. Billy Wilder, you know, even as recently as Soderbergh, that's how that worked. Doesn't work that way anymore. There's there's no for you. You it's like yeah, you go talk to the Weinstein's and make that you make that movie, but we're not going to make it for you. But if you want to come back and do you know Ant Man with us, that's great. I mean James Gunn. There's a movie coming out soon, a little indie that James Gunn wrote. It's not a studio film. It's like, if you work for the studios, you're going to do Guardians. If you want to do something else, go to another company. They, they will not even do that movie for him as a reward. No. It's pocket no. change, that movie. That's it. They're, they're like, how about instead of one for you, we just pay you more for this one. And, you know, what, what director isn't going to take that deal? It's like, really? So, in, so it's, it's either I get paid $3 million to direct this one and... You make my little movie, but since you don't want to make my little movie, you're going to pay me $5 million. All right, I'll take that deal. On, Why wouldn't on, you? On the plus side, now Summit becomes, a, 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 not that it wasn't already, it becomes a, a mini-major. Well, and Summit, now they get Summit, to make yeah, good I mean, movies. Summit, Lionsgate becomes a mini-major, which they are. Summit and, we should point out, Summit and Lionsgate are the same company. Now, they were not 
previously. Uh, Lionsgate won Best Picture for uh, Crash back in 2005. 2005. I still love Crash. I defend that movie to my dying day. And uh, and then in, uh, what was it, 2011, when, uh, Hurt, was it Hurt Locker? Hurt Locker, yeah. Hurt Locker was Summit, right? And it was after that that they merged. And uh, so, you know, now Lionsgate and Summit, basically the same company. Two brands under the same company, kind of like Fox and Fox Searchlight or, uh, you know, uh, the Sony Classics and, and Columbia, whatever, Columbia and TriStar. You know, they're different labels now, have been for some time. So, um, yeah, it's great. It makes, I mean, it, it validates Summit. It's a, it's a huge, it was a huge gamble for them on their end of the Lionsgate Summit equation. And, and it's great. Look, uh, you know, nobody lost on Oscar night. I mean, Moonlight had the most to gain. But uh, nobody lost anything. La La Land is a huge hit. Let's forget. La La Land now, yes, it's the most nominated film not to win Best Picture. But the movie that it beats for that record is Mary Poppins. That's not a, that's not a bad company to be you in. Are just, you just can't get over the fact that you lost your Oscar pool because you I, had that picked in I, like nine categories. I got 15 right. It was, it was insane. What I'm curious about is this. You know, Moonlight wins, okay. Yeah. Did Moonlight win... Because the newer, younger members of the Academy voted for Moonlight, or did they win because the older white voters of the Academy thought, if we just vote for this African-American film, everyone will get off our back about Oscar So White? We can only, we can only speculate, but uh, here's my speculation. I think the films that, and, the, and the, the contributions that were nominated would have been nominated anyway. The, the nominations were not a response to Oscar So White because, as we all know, these movies are in, in development, you know, for years. And so we were always going to have Moonlight. We were always going to have – in fact, I, you know, the film that everybody expected to be there was Birth of a Nation, which, you know, tanked and self-destructed. Uh, but we were always going to have Moonlight. We were always going to have uh, Hidden Figures. We were always going to have Fences. Uh, we were always going to have uh, Lion. All of these movies were always going to be in the mix, Okay. All of these contributions are always going to be in the mix. I do think that um, I'm, I'm, and I'm always on record as saying that whatever wins Best Picture, it's not—it's the film of the moment. It, it speaks more to the temperature of the Academy. What do they value among their their own at a given moment in time? What is the context that that a film wins? Rocky is one of the worst Oscar winners of all time. It is. It's a terrible movie, but it was the bicentennial year. It was after Watergate. It was after the end of Vietnam. It was worse an election than the greatest, year. Worse than the greatest show on earth. You know, greatest show on earth. I don't think is as bad as everyone else thinks. Uh-huh. I really don't. I, I, it's it's not a good film, but it's not the the worst of all time. Rocky is a really terrible best picture winner, especially when you look at the movies that it's up against. I mean, oh, that like, year was incredible. It was an incredible movie year. You look at those five, and you Down go, for "Glory and oh, Network," my, and and, and uh, all the presidents' men. It was amazing. That was an amazing year. Any of those would have been a better winner. Any of those. And they gave it to Rocky. Why? Because, you know, Rocky... dog, bicentennial. Bicentennial, right? So, so you, you, you take the temperature. La La Land would have been pushing all the same buttons as the artists just four years ago, okay? And uh, it would, you know, the artist already was speaking to a sense of nostalgia, which I think the older generation of the Academy has in their blood. It's, we, we long for the days when we could make movies like this, when everything was different. Uh, I do think the younger members of the Academy, and I do think more liberal members of the Academy who are affected by perhaps by the Oscar So White campaign and might have had their votes swayed, let's share the wealth a bit. And I do think a, a more ethnically diverse Academy membership, which was introduced with these, this unprecedented you know, acceptance of, of, of several hundred members who you know, a lot of people were extended invitations to try to diversify the, the makeup of the Academy last year. 
I do think that had an effect. But I think mostly what this is saying is there's a demographic in the Academy that feels like the nostalgia for the movie business represented by La La Land versus the nostalgia for the Obama years that they're projecting on Moonlight. Uh, I think the latter, in their completely apoplectic inability to comprehend Trump, probably swayed out. I do, th- I do think that the, the Trump reaction probably had something to do with giving it to Moonlight. Now, that said, that doesn't take anything away from Moonlight. I don't think La La Land or Moonlight are the movies that people are projecting that onto. But in the context of the moment, that's what they seize onto. And I think that has an effect. So that's my read. Well, now they have something else to worry about, which is yeah. how to regain their credibility for that's the big question. Awards, that's know? the big question. And, and frankly, the, the answer is studios need to make Oscar-caliber movies again. They need to spend $30, $40 million per movie on three or four really, really good movies, and they need to hire creative execs that, that have that freedom. And then they need to basically tell the marketing people, you don't get a say in what we're choosing, but you do have to work your ass off selling these movies and we're going to you know we're going to put these into thousands of theaters and we're going to spend some money on them we're going to platform them and we're going to road show them and we're going to do the way they used to and uh the boards are just going to have to suck it up and ultimately really it's not a lot of mo- money off the off their backs i mean it would be for paramount because they don't make anything anymore but seriously it it, it has to change it's got to change otherwise this just becomes uh the business changes in really really unforeseeable and unfortunate ways i'd be i'd be curious to see whether of course the answer to this is never in a million years but what, what whether paramount almost becomes a mini major they knock themselves down now they start doing these 30 to 60 million dollar films that get them paramount, acclaim on oscars yeah paramount has but they have mission impossible they've got they have, two, they, they have too many they have they have a really you know paramount has a great library they really do and a lot of studios don't care about their libraries anymore. If you and our listeners had any idea what my communications are like with the people at Universal who have zero interest in their library, and when my emails go out and go, why don't you guys ever promote your library titles? Crickets. They never get back to me. They never get back to me. Somewhere there's an edict from on high over at Universal, you know, that our library, our catalog titles... We're, that's just, that's just going to go under the radar. Which is odd because they're relaunching The Mummy with Tom Cruise. So they definitely are trying to once again relaunch their classic Strange. monster movie lineup. You know, they tried it with The it. Mummy with Brendan Fraser. And Don't, that get was, eh. Don't get it. Don't anyway. get it. Anyway, so um, it, it will be interesting because there will be big changes. You cannot have two unbelievably low-rated Oscar casts in a row and then this, and then cap it off with this embarrassing moment without being dramatic changes. So I think you're going to have the, the Academy... There's going to be some real soul-searching with the, uh, when the governors meet. And uh, I, I think they're... You know, I think Shelbun Isaacs is gone. I think Kimmel's gone. I think the producers are gone. I think there are going to be some dramatic changes. I think we may go back to five nominees. I think that would be a good thing. Oh, but here's the thing. The preferential voting system... Cha- that's gone. That's got to be gone. gone. That's gone. That's gone. The preferential voting system... And this is another point that I've, I've been bringing up, which is... The um, we ha- the film that has won Best Picture, we've had – it used to be like in the first 50 years of the Academy Awards, you had a director picture split like four times. Yeah, we remember when Bruce Beresford uh, didn't win Best Director when Driving Miss Daisy oh, won or, Best Picture. It, it, it was, was the biggest like, deal in the world. It was the biggest deal in the world. In, 2000, in, in, uh, in uh, 1972, it was a huge deal. I mean it was 1973, the ceremony, but it was a huge deal that The Godfather won Best Picture – but Cabaret won more awards and Best Director. Like, wow, how did that happen? 
This happens all the time now. We have had something like six or seven consecutive Oscars where the film that wins Best Picture was not the film that won the most or else it tied. Well, that's, that's mathematically way more possible now with ten film nominees. That's it. And when you rank, when you have to rank, when, when Best Picture is not the one that gets the most votes, period, but it's based on this algorithm because people rank from, you know, one to nine or one to ten, um, it changes. And it gets very, very hazy. And I, I don't, frankly, I don't, you know, the best picture doesn't have to be the one that wins the most awards every year, but it kind of should be. It really should be. It makes it exciting. You know, you, I mean, you, people, we haven't, we haven't had that happen since the Hurt Locker. Well, then the, the, only, other way, the only way to do it is to do it the old-fashioned way, which is at just one man, Five one nominees. vote. And that's it. Five nominees, one man, one vote. That's it. That's the way it should be. So they need to go back to that. Frankly, I think they should go back to uh, Monday nights. I think they're going to get better ratings on Monday nights. I really do. I think well, Sunday, night, Sunday night I understood, but it, there's too much else going on Sunday night. Monday night, the only thing they ever had to compete against was uh, you know, Monday night football. And football season is over in, uh, in March anyway. So push it back to the end of March. And uh, you know, nothing else going on on a Monday night. People will race home. Do it. I agree. They should do I it. I agree. It's time for change. Time for change. It'll well, be a later show again. You know, it'll start at six. Uh, it'll be midnight on the East Coast before anything really wraps up. But so what? Uh, they're not going to. New York is the number one market in the country. They're, they're, yeah. they're not going to do that to the number one market in the country. Well, that's how it used to be. It used to be. Well, it, well I mean, they're all so you only used to be three networks. Yeah, but so it, you don't want to alienate people when they can easily either go to sleep or click to something else. I think they need to, and you need to, you need to get together with the studio heads. You need to say seriously, Uncle, please, what do we need to do to get you guys to make some serious movies? I mean, really, make more. What do we need to do to get more money ball, more, more? Uh, but, but, but how, how is that going to increase the ratings of the Oscars? Let's say, let let's say Paramount made Lion. Yeah. Let, let's say Universal made Hell or High Water. Yeah. You know, because they now, would except have put, for marketing dollars. Well, that's it. No, they would have put those into, into 3,000 screens instead of 300 screens. Maybe. Maybe they would have platformed spent, it. Maybe they would have platformed it. They could have platformed it. But even when you platform something, you're still spending tens of millions of dollars every week to get people jazzed up. When's it coming to my town? That's the whole point of platforming is to sort of, you know, amp up the anticipation to blow the balloon up so that when you finally let it go, it just it just run like, oh, my gosh, I've been seeing ads for that forever and I've been waiting for it. And now it's finally here. Well, then then maybe <sighs> the, then, then maybe the studios should just be distribution partners in a lot of these films, which they are already. Well, that that move already started happening 30 years ago. Yeah. So they, so somebody else can make ago. it. Universal picks it up, as happens all the time, especially yeah. at festivals. Yeah. Universal picks it up, and they just they distribute the hell out of it. Yeah, do it. Do it. Seriously. Come on. Because they're not going to make those movies. They're not going to make the <sighs> 30 to $60 million Oscar bait. All right. Speaking of, Moana's out. I do not have Moana in front of me because my daughter will not let it go. But I will tell you, it's pretty great. It's a great movie. Uh, parts of it make no absolutely no sense. I mean, Moana is a little bit of a mess of a script. Uh, didn't really all fall together. There's like the giant boat with these little midget people who wear masks on it. Comes out of, out of the blue and goes nowhere. It's just a set piece for the hell of a set piece. But you know what? My daughter loves Moana. That's all about you Moana. care about. That's all I care about. Moana is absolutely terrific. Uh, it, it's. I'm wondering. They sent us a 3D Blu-ray. I'm wondering how much longer uh, they will continue to make Blu-ray 3D because uh, they don't make 3D televisions anymore. So they're basically releasing Blu-rays with 3D only for the installed base. And eventually that installed base reaches a place where that's not really worth anybody's time anymore. Absolutely not. Yeah. 
So anyway, uh, perfectly fine. I prefer it regular Blu-ray as I do most things, and uh, it is just uh, it is loaded, loaded, loaded with extras, deleted song, deleted scenes. Uh, really great little mini movie. It's just it's just terrific. Everything everything on Moana is terrific. Uh, the sound is staggering. The songs, I think, are better than people gave them credit for. And Dwayne Johnson can sing. Who knew? Seriously. You know, it's funny, too. My daughter is at, at last becoming very aware of the fact that not all Disney princesses are alike. And you know Disney, Disney made a concerted effort to make sure about five, seven, ten well, years ago that all their Disney princesses were no longer white, blonde. My My daughter now understands that there are... The Disney princesses are different, and she can put them into two different groups. Those that have short sleeves and those that have long sleeves. And I'm not kidding. I'm serious. She, so who- she separates them. She, we, I got her little dolls, and she's got, she, takes, she takes Tiana and Snow White and Moana and, uh, and, and Alice in Wonderland, who's part of the princesses, they, they all have short sleeves. <laughs> they all go over here. And then, you know, you've got Jasmine and uh, Cinderella and Belle. They all have long sleeves. They go over here. It's the funniest thing in the world. Speaking of Belle, I saw Beauty and the Beast. Yes. How, uh, is, it, is it an exclusively gay Beauty and the Beast? It is not. You know what? It's so funny. It's like Outfest Beauty and the Beast, it, right? It really is. You know what? There is so much rambling gay sex, you it's would just, not even it, believe it. I, that's what, I, that's it's what incredible. I've heard. It's like... Uh, yeah, but it, 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 it toes the lines <laughs> so so beautifully if, 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 that... I hear that Belle is trans and Belle Beast... Is trans. Is, yeah. well, well, the Beast is, you know, he's yeah. you know, he's, he's a bear. Yeah, right. Gay exactly. Community, he's a bear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the, the, the gay thing is so interesting because if if you are gay yourself or you're sympathetic to those causes, you will see Josh Gad's character as being gay. Yeah. If you are not, then you will either be A, offended, or you will just think it's being played for laughs, which really is almost more offensive to me <sighs> because if you're going to have a gay character in a Disney film, have him be gay. You know, Don't play him for laughs. So it, some of it kind of depends on your, your approach to gay issues and yeah. homosexuality. But um, the film, as I told Wade before the show, is essentially... The film pretty much answers the question, what would the animated film look like if it were live action? Yeah. And when it was over, I said, okay, now I know. Yeah. That was it. Well, uh, as long as we're on the subject, before we get back to uh, Beauty and the Beast, uh, which, by the way, I, I, well, I'll say what I have to say uh, in just a moment. Uh, we do have, we have a couple of uh, LGBT titles, both from Wolf. Uh, Departure, filmed by Andrew Stegall. Um, actually fairly, a, a very, very nicely done, but otherwise, uh, somewhat routine, quote unquote, uh, struggling with one's sexuality movie, which is what, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these films are, but this is actually quite, uh, quite well done, uh, about a teenage kid and a debut filmmaker, this Steckle guy, uh, and does a very, very good job. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is just basically a family drama with some very, very decent, uh, performances. This one, uh, made the festival rounds a little bit. And then uh, this one is actually kind of uh, not very good, but it's it's funny enough. Uh, this is from a director named Rob Williams called Shared Rooms. It's basically a gay Christmas comedy, a uh, big romantic comedy set during Christmas. And it's uh, you can tell it's a limited budget, but uh, it's, you know, it's got its moments. It's not, not, not bust out loud hilarious, but... You know, I think as a as a crossover comedy, it's not it's not so inside gay humor that if you're not gay, you wouldn't necessarily get it. So watch it with a gay friend when uh, Christmas rolls around. Um, so here's what I have to say: 
Disney made a big giant mistake. All of this stuff with uh, Beauty and the Beast erupted when uh, Condon and the actors did interviews for a cover story with an English gay magazine. And they, as you often do when you're tailoring your interviews to a given publication, they went way overboard to cater to that audience. And uh, Condon's, you know, in, in like 1985, if you gave an interview for a movie to The Advocate, the only people that would ever actually know what you said were the people who read The Advocate. Uh, but in the age of the Internet, where everyone's website is up for everyone else to read, if you give a quote to one publication, everyone else is going to pick it up in about 10 seconds flat. And when Condon uh, talked about Josh Gad having a quote-unquote exclusively gay moment and the magazine really blew it up, that got picked up by everyone instantly, and then a theater in Alabama is dropping the movie, and next thing you know, Condon has to come back and say, well, it's not that gay, and now you pissed off everybody. Now Christians are angry at you, and now gay people are angry at you, and you, you blew it. He should have just shut up. He never should have said anything. It is true, because now it's become about something else. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really messed up, and G- Disney has so much riding on this movie. I mean, Cinderella, so much. Cinderella did surprisingly well. So did uh, so did uh, Maleficent. And Maleficent did well. And Jungle Book did phenomenally well. So I mean, their live action adaptations. It's a it's a train they want to keep going. They already have Milan in the works. Milan is the next one. You know, they're they're doing this. And uh, man, Condon, he knows better. Man, he knows know. better. He's made a he lot really... of great films. He's a great filmmaker, but uh, he should know better. And hopefully, hopefully, look if some. If some theater in Alabama doesn't show it, good for them, whatever, yeah. uh, who, who cares? Yeah. Hopefully that won't spread to elsewhere around the South where you know, we'll these movies need it's... the help of every theater they can. And also, you know, how well will this play overseas? Because yeah. ultimately overseas is a big deal too. Yeah. Now, supposing in Russia they, they're trying to ban the film. Did you hear about this? No. In Russia they're trying to ban the film. Really? Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. I'm sure Condon woke up to that and thought, uh, oh, my God. Uh, All right, real quick, cause, uh, uh, none of these films are good. Um, Priceless, it's um, inspired by a true story, which is to say that uh, somebody took one sentence of a story that was in a newspaper and changed 98% of it, and now it's inspired by a true story. Um, <laughs> anyway, this guy, uh, his, his wife dies, and uh, he's at a crossroads, and uh, he decides to uh, drive a truck across the country for cash. And then all sorts of crazy things happen. Priceless, not a good film. It uh, should be exciting and taut and uh, turn the screws, but uh, I just think this thing just really drags. And also, I have to say, Wade, now, Hollywood is filled with actors Mm -hmm. who have changed their name. Yes. Right? Yep. Kirk Douglas is not Kirk Douglas. No. I can't even pronounce that guy's Russian name. Woody Allen isn't Woody Allen. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, one guy who should have changed his name. Look at the... uh, This is so mean. It's not his fault, but... Look, he really should have changed his name. Look at the name of the uh, of the. Uh, uh, read for us the name of the star of Priceless. Uh, the star of Priceless is Judge. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's horrible! You shouldn't have surprised me that way, uh, Joel Smallbone. <laughs> that's that's mean. That's it's, really uh, you 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 hurt his feelings yeah, look, because you ha- you surprised me with it. Look, God, God love him. I'm sure he's uh, fantastic, but yeah. I'm just saying that uh, this uh, this faith based film is uh, simply not very good. So forget. Uh, hopefully, Mr. Smallbone. And that's a faith that's a faith based film on top of and, everything and, else. Yes, and you should have faith that the movie's oh, not very good. Uh, Shia LaBeouf stars in a film called Man Down. Now you know if it's got Shia LaBeouf and Gary Oldman and Kate Mara, and it barely comes out. 
you know, yeah, it is not very good. I and know. so LaBeouf, who was getting, who's making headlines for maybe all the right reasons politically, that's up to you guys to decide. But for all the wrong reasons, in terms of if you're trying to promote your film, he's home from Afghanistan and he's finding it very difficult. Uh, you know, his best friend and his son and his wife, and they're all trying to kind of you know come back to the states and get on with their lives, and. It's got these weird, like, post-apocalyptic uh, overtones to yeah. it, and it tries to give, like, kind of this poignant message about uh, mental health and the mental health of our veterans, but the thing was very kind of exploitative and overwrought, and I really did not like it, and, I, and I, I, I'm having trouble now separating, separating Shia LaBeouf, the actor, from Shia LaBeouf, the freak. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just think that mm-hmm. Man Down is a, there are other, you know, I'd go see American Sniper. I think American Sniper is a much better film that is kind of a little bit like this. Yep. Um, yeah, I'd pass on that. Also, another film that is um, disappointingly okay because it's got a terrific cast, Michael Fassbender and uh, Brendan Gleeson in Trespass Against Us. Now, everyone loves Brendan Gleeson. He's terrific. Michael Fassbender had a moment there. Now that moment is kind of slipping a little bit with Assassin's Creed and now with this. But um, the movie is uh, there's three generations of this family, and they're all outlaws, and they all live on the, on the, uh, on the, British, in the British countryside. And so uh, it's what this family goes through. And again, it's a good cast. But in the end, you know, you're spending a lot of time hanging out with these criminal types. And their idea of fun is not my idea of fun. And I just found the thing is just really lamely directed and not much impact. And it needs, there's something here that needs more. It felt like it needed some like, you know, sociological or more political credibility to kind of give it that extra dimension, yeah. and it just didn't really have it. So I just found this thing just be very bland and just, uh, you know, just not that great. Although I, I, I love Brendan Gleeson and Fassbender, too. Yeah, I do, too. Bummer. Big, big bummer. All right, I got uh, three horror films here that are, uh, you know, modest. Well, it's all it's all kind of trashy, but it's it's varying degrees of trashy, and there's going to be fans for all this stuff. So, I don't know. You 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 make the decision whether or not it's your kind of thing. None of it's really my kind of thing. First, first up is Officer Down. D O W N E. You get it, Mark? It's a pun. Mm. Officer Down. I don't get it. Okay. Well, he's kind of like this zombie officer. Basically, this is a guy. It's a little bit of RoboCop here. Uh, there is through dark science. Uh, they can resurrect this guy endlessly. So he's just—he's uh, basically a rampaging zombie policeman that they just keep resurrecting to go out and go at it again. And uh, they try to turn it into kind of a buddy cop thing at a certain point. And uh, it's based on a graphic novel, apparently, which I've never heard of. Uh, it has the, the the tagline is better than the movie: "Crime never sleeps, but justice never dies." Uh, anyway, this is really, really over the top and, and unhinged. It's, uh, I guess there's a little bit of, a little bit of Deadpool in this too. It's like Deadpool meets, um, meets, uh, Robocop, probably the best way to put it. Anyway, uh, it's relatively well-made, but, uh, you know, pretty much straight for genre audiences. Then we also have a, uh, Possession and Exorcism movie called Incarnate. This is the unrated version with Aaron Eckhart, uh, playing an exorcist, who uh, thinks that he can be a little bit more scientific about uh, exercising people of demons, but uh, he meets his match with this one kid who is, you know, possessed by something that is really, really off the wall. And then, you know, you get to go completely crazy. Uh, It's not, there's nothing on here. There's just a featurette. And uh, it's strictly for people who like this kind of thing. And then the last one is The Eyes of My Mother, which is uh, from Magnet and uh, Magnolia. This is probably the best of all of these. Uh, this, is, this is interesting. 
It gets a little, it kind of loses its uh, steam at the end, but it's basically about a young woman scarred as a child by the way that she was raised by her surgeon mother. I will give you no other details. The revelations in this thing are very smart. Again, it really only goes off the rails at the end, but it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and it has an inter- interview with the director, Nicholas Pesce, uh, which I think means fish in uh, Italian or something. Anyway, uh, and it's got some stills. All of these are on Blu-ray, and uh, genre fans should have a nice, fun post-Oscars month. Wait, I'm trying to get rid of this uh, chocolate peanut butter ice cream. Okay, I'm, I'll, I, I twist my arm. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I had the dental surgery on Wednesday. Oh, yeah. I had an implant installed. Is that why your face looks so puffy? Yes, it is, Wade. It's why my face looks so goddamn puffy. <laughs> and so $7,000 later, uh. implant sinus lift, $7,000. Mm-hmm. Sucks. Of which my insurance only covers like 1500 So I That's basically, uh, I will be staying home a lot. Wow. For the next five years. Lame. However, I can't talk about Rules Don't Apply, which mm. is um, Warren Beatty's first film in like 73 years. And he's wanted to make a movie about Howard Hughes for so long. And as you know, Warren Beatty is, is, is the ultimate Hollywood dither. Yeah. He will, he will think about and ruminate over a film for so long that 25 years will pass before he makes it, which brings us to Rules Don't Apply. Oh, and boy. the funny thing is that I, I guarantee that when he first thought about making a movie about Howard Hughes, it would be a movie about Howard Hughes. But he took so long, and he is now so old, that yeah. if he were to make a movie where, about Howard Hughes, you know, I don't know that people would buy it. You'd have to have three other actors playing him as a young man. But, but now he's got to make the movie about these two other people, this young actress and Howard Hughes' driver, played by Lily Collins and Aidan Aldenreich, and how, how Howard Hughes is sort of this shadow figure and trying to help bring them together. So in a way, now Howard Hughes is sort of this you know, background in a way supporting figure when really you just know that, that Warren is like, I just want to make it about Howard Hughes. That's all I care about. Which is really good ice cream. That's how I felt about the movie. I just, you liked it? No. No. I thought the ice cream I was eating while I was watching was good. <laughs> so I, I, I just think that... Uh, it's not bad, but it, it's just, it's just, it's, um, it's white bread, right? I don't it's think just, this is the film that he wanted to make. I, no. I think he wanted to make a, 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 his ultimate, uh, ultimate Howard Hughes film, but in the end, he's so damn old, and you and he's too old to woo the girl. So he's got to find a young character. He's got to create a young character to woo the girl instead, and that's Aiden Aldenreich, who's the new Han Solo, and he's so, terrific. Would you rather go out being the guy who screwed up the most important moment in Oscar history, or the guy who made this movie? <laughs> See, I, I what's uh, more embarrassing? The problem is that if, if this movie. See, people don't remember this movie anymore. It's already gone. 30, 30 million people watch, or 32 million people watched the Oscars, watched them screw up. 32 million people didn't see this movie. No, but if this movie came out now, mm-hmm. people would say, another screw-up for Warren Beatty off mm-hmm. the heels of the Oscars. Here comes yeah. his first film in 20 years. Rules don't apply, and it's just as bad as the Oscars. You know what I mean? Like it, 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 This almost would have right. gotten more attention, if yeah. negative attention. Um so I, I just this film is just it's ve- it was very disappointing and at his age I'm afraid that's pretty much it for him. Yeah, especially now. All right. Um, so Open Road, who won uh, Best Picture last year for Spotlight, went from Spotlight to Moonlight. If you want to win Best Picture next year, put light in your title. Uh, Daylight. If there's a you know name your movie Daylight something anyway. Uh, Open Road, who uh, financed and released Spotlight last year making them the uh, the youngest company ever to go from uh, inception to best picture winner okay, we in have, history. We have we have um, Amazon, 
Netflix, yeah. Open Road, all these players, and it's just and distributors too, A twenty four, Annapurna, all these yeah. exciting new players. I know it's great. This Amazon when like Amazon's like an Oscar winning movie company. I know, now. I know it's crazy, right? Um, so anyway, Open Road, uh, their their big attempt at an Oscar contender this year didn't really pan out. It was Bleed for This with Miles Teller and Aaron Eckhart again. This is actually a really good movie. Uh, I'm not quite sure why this didn't pan out. Um, you know, Miles Teller, who, by the way, was originally supposed to play the Ryan Gosling part in uh, La La Land. It would have won. It, it, you know, it wouldn't have been as good. I'm glad he did this, and I'm glad that... Uh, Emma, what's her name, went on to do Beauty and the Beast because that was the original pairing that was going to be in La La Land, and that wouldn't have worked. By the way, you know, people say, "Oh, if it was if it was uh, Miles Teller, then he would have starred in an Oscar-winning picture." But yeah. it, w- it would have been a different film. Yeah, and it may not well, have been as good. And it's funny too because because Ryan Gosling to me was the weak link in that film, and it was still nominated for fourteen Oscars. The uh, this is basically a true story of a guy who was a boxer and then who suffered an auto accident that severed his spine. And had to make what was a near impossible recovery to box again. So this is not one of those will he or will he not win the fight movies. This is will he or will he not actually recover his life movies. It makes it a little different. Not a conventional boxing movie. It is a very, very good film. And it's on ultraviolet as well. And uh, Miles Teller continues to just surprise me. He's a much better actor than I'm ever willing to give him credit for. Every time I think he's hit the limit of his, his range... Uh, he pushes, and he goes somewhere else. So, uh, Bleed for This, which also includes deleted scenes, and uh, it's, you know, Ultraviolet and uh, Blu-ray and DVD all in the same package. Very, very good. Good stuff. Um, we have a thing called New Life, which is a little indie that uh, probably deserves uh, a little bit of love and attention. Um, New Life is kind of one of those um, gentle, soft... I don't know what's what's. Why do I always forget the guy's name? The Nicholas Sparks. It's got it's kind of Nicholas Sparks ish. Yawn. Uh, but this is you know, but but it's not. But but it gets a little bit more real at a certain point. It has a very very good cast. Uh, some great sporting performances by you know like Terry O'Quinn shows up in this thing. He's always very very good. Uh, a little bit scary and intimidating, but has a great face. Anyway, uh, basically two people who um, you know uh, grew up as kids, guy and a girl, and. Um, Eventually, you know, have a have a romance as adults, and then something happens, and uh, I won't I won't I won't tell you what happens. You know, we oh, but you but you know, it's uh, it's it's really good. I enjoyed it. I thought it was very very good. Jonathan Patrick Moore and Aaron Buffet, very very good. Never seen either of them before, but I uh, thought there's some good stuff to it. And um, then we have a movie that I absolutely detest. I despise everything about this movie. Ice Age: The Great Egg Escapade, absolutely horrible, dreadful. Dreadful, dreadful, dreadful. There's nothing good about this. Uh, this is just, uh, you know, more, more, more nonsense from the, the whole Ice Age thing. I, I can't. I just can't. I can't. I, I thought I, Collision Course was, was bad, and, and this is just nonsense. This is just trying to, you know, get an Easter thing going. I, I'm so done with Scrat and everything to do with this world. Why making these movies? Who's because because these movies? Ice Age is huge overseas for some bizarre, strange insane reason i don't know um and then mark i'm gonna let you uh you you like that a whole lot better than i do so you can you can lead on that i I love Um, my ice cream idris elba making a lot of movies that go straight to dvd these days but they're all pretty good to be honest but he's he's awesome i wish he wouldn't do that he's great i know i wish he wouldn't do it either but they're throwing money at him and uh as long as they're doing that you know boat payments right like you used to always say 
Uh, this is a British film. Idris Elba, Gemma Arterton, who I also adore, along with Tom Cullen, Franz Drama. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, kind of, it's not a, um, a thriller per se. It's a little bit more of kind of a gentle version of Crash set in London. Maybe that's a, the best way of putting it. Uh, three separate stories all take place, present day London. And uh, Elba plays a uh, former rugby player, and uh, Gemma Arterton is an actress who doesn't want to be married to him anymore. Uh, and then, you know, there's some other very, very interesting little uh, tidbits in here. There's a guy who's a cab driver. And how all these stories kind of wrap together um, is interesting. This movie was released theatrically uh, in some places by Samuel Goldwyn. It didn't really uh, go anywhere, so it winds up being basically a straight-to-DVD, straight-to-Blu-ray movie for for, the, for 90% of the people. I don't think this had an L.A. release. I think it had a very, very limited release it may have but as far as i'm concerned this is straight to dvd straight to straight to, to blu-ray i have not i've never even heard of it anyway uh so that's called 100 streets every street has a story uh see it for idris elba and Gemma arterton they're just great speak of his great i love jackie i thought it was great i love this film an extremely unconventional uh biopic this is not like jacqueline smith playing uh, jackie onassis yeah. this is really more like you know, when somebody dies, as obviously most of us know, and if you don't know, I'm sorry, when you find out someday, that the first few days, you're almost in like this haze. Yeah. Your whole, it's like you're covered in gauze. Right. And that's what this movie is. Yes. This movie just wanders around in a daze as she tries to come to grips with what happened, and not only as a person, but as a first lady, as the wife of the president. And all the pressure that's on her, mm. and I just I the, the the music and the drifting camera, and I, I don't even know that it needed the, the framing device. The framing the device is the thing that drove me crazy. Uh, I, I'll, I'll but tell that's you. the only thing that la- allows her to articulate her feelings. I otherwise, know. she's not ready to do that yet. I know it still bothers me, still bugs me. Uh, I've never liked that framing device. I have forgiven it twice. Uh, only because of Arabia. No, no, no. Lawrence Arabia doesn't have that frame. Uh, Doctor Zhivago has that framing device, kind of. It's not a journalist interviewing, but it's you know, it's it's Alec Guinness. Uh, but Zhivago does it a very interesting way, and it's much more subtle. The the one that really shamelessly does it is Chaplin, and the makeup is terrible. And Robert Downey Jr. is at the old age makeup. It's ridiculous. It's horrible. That 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 entire framing device in Chaplin is just dreadful. The rest of the movie is great. Here, the framing device isn't dreadful. It's just lame. Uh, and the rest of the movie is has spots of, of really good stuff. My One of my biggest... Two of my other problems with it, her accent comes and goes. She kind of overdoes it a little bit. The, the sequence where they recreate the aftermath of the assassination is astonishing. That is amazing filmmaking. It really is. It's great stuff. That, that shot where the camera goes over oh the bars my gosh. is going down the Tremendous, highway. tremendous. That, but that whole sequence, everything rela- related to that is really impressive. Um, but the guy that they cast as JFK, he's like, he's like five foot one. Are you kidding me? They went and found a guy who actually looks like JFK. Like literally looks like him. Right. Exactly like him. Where's Bruce Greenwood? We need Bruce Greenwood. We need Bruce Greenwood, exactly. But looking like him is not the thing. You have to, be, you have to convincingly be him, even if you don't look like him. Bruce Greenwood... In, uh, what was it, 13 Hours? Is that yeah. what it was called? It, tremendous. Doesn't yes. look anything like Kennedy, but he that, sells it. Because you know why he sells it? He's Bruce Greenwood. Yeah. He's cool. They needed that. They didn't need a guy who, I mean, okay, if truly. That's, okay, if that's the biggest, if that's the biggest knock on the film, come well, on. Well, look, Kennedy was, Kennedy was not short. He was tall. Okay? He was tall. 
And when you have a guy who looks like JFK and they're sitting there in that White House uh, concert scene, and then he stands and he stands up, and you realize that he's just as tall standing up as he was sitting down. Embarrassing. That is not the president. Get out of your mind. No, it just isn't. That was a silly moment. Okay. Anyway, I love this film. It's a great film. It's, it's, it's a score very, is terrific. Oh, I love you know, but that that. That score sells the mood. It does. You know, it's an yeah. unconventional score, an unconventional film. I thought it was absolutely terrific, Jackie. And very and, well shot. Um, huh? Very well shot, too. Very well shot. Uh, yeah, the, um, the Blu-ray also includes a DVD. And, uh, yeah, gotta love it. Yep. All right, and then uh, we got uh, Ice T, man. He's not on Law and Order anymore, so he is—he's uh, killing it here. How do you, uh, how making do you movies. even know that? Huh? How do, you, how do you even know he's not on? I don't know. He do, might do be. You watch those films? Nah, he might shows? be. He might be on. Uh, he might be on uh, Special Victims Unit still. I, I haven't uh, watched it in years. What? I'm assuming that thing. He probably still is, for all I know. Anyway, um, Ice T still has time to make movies like Blood Runners. In a world, he does all kinds of things. You've seen his wife, right? We no E E Entertainment. Or I think it was E had a oh, that's show. That's right. They had a show. It was Ice Tea and Coco. Oh my goodness. Anyway, anyway, speaking of not to kind of go to deviate, but uh, have you have you seen the pictures of Nicki Minaj at uh, Paris Fashion Week? No. Okay, if I'm not at the office, I don't care what Nicki Minaj does. She can okay. live or die. I don't care. Nicki Minaj is killing it at, at Fashion Week. She mm-hmm. is. She's killing it. She's everywhere, and she's just. I, it's just. I thank God for Nicki Minaj. I, I really. Can I say something that's going to make me look old? What? So, all music today just sucks. <laughs> it's just so, it's either just like this obnoxious beat yeah. over a bunch of swear. I feel so old. Just like this obnoxious beat over a bunch of swearing. I know. Or it's like generic Taylor Swift crap. Right. Like, where is that distinctive? Where thing? is John Philip Sousa when you need him? Right. Johnny Philly, Johnny Phil Sousa? J.F. J.P. J.F. J- that, right, J-P. J.P. We'll J-P. call him J.P. J.P. Sousa. Yeah. Love it. Uh, it could be John Philippe Souza. Maybe he changed his name too. Okay, so anyway, Ice T uh, plays a vampire, and uh, it all this all takes place during Prohibition, and you know he's a vampire during Prohibition. I don't know. I, seriously, I don't know what where else to go with this. Um, it's it's rather silly. Uh, it's made for next to no money. I'm sure Ice T just because he wanted to play a vampire, uh, but uh, you know it's. Uh, it's it's silly. It's not as it, as far as movies set during that period. It's not as misbegotten as the Ben Affleck movie. What is it? Was they call us night? They drive by night. Oh, they yeah, live I, by which night. I never went up. They live by night. Yeah, but anyway. All right. So Ice Tea, Blood Runners. Uh, it's on Blu-ray. Knock yourself out. Boy, Naomi Watts, man. Uh, she's got a she's got to step up her game. Yeah, I know, right? What is she doing and stuff like Shut In? I just don't I understand. Don't know. She plays that she's a child psychologist and uh, the husband's dead. And they live in New England and then. Uh, it's that this girl goes missing, and and there's some ghost. There's a ghost thing going on there too, and I just think this thing is just absolutely terrible. I don't know what is wrong with um, with Naomi Watts' career. This thing that is, it's not. There's not thrilling at all. She, the whole thing is just just a bunch of just over the top nonsense, and I just feel like the character. She just walks around holding a lantern. Pretending to be scared. It's just, it's just, it really was oddly inept. I don't really know what the situation is, but uh, I would definitely pass on Shut In, um, although it does have Oliver Platt, and Oliver Platt's always uh, moderately priceless. Yes, he is. So. Great. Love Oliver Platt. He's a Plattian. He's the man. He's the man. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, we've got one more. Right? One more? Is this the, of the new films? Yeah. So, Resistance. 
uh, has to throw a great big swastika on the cover so that you understand that this is resisting Nazism. Because, you know, resist has become like a, like a kind of a cliched thing now. Michael Sheen uh, shows up in this for some strange reason, I guess because he does all kinds of things. This is a pretty standard uh, World War II movie, except for one interesting twist, which is the same twist that we have on uh, the TV show. What's the TV show with uh, where, where World War II uh, Nazis are taking over the world? South Park? Uh, no, The Man in the High Castle. It's kind of Man in the High Castle. Not South Park? No. Uh, so anyway, D-Day failed. Britain is occupied by Nazis, and uh, you know you you wind up, but but somehow you know enemies have to become friends. It's a little bit uh, not really fully fleshed out. Michael Sheen's very very good. Amit Gupta is a very good director, but uh, it's needed better better thinking, better writing, better execution. Uh, and if you're uh, if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, there's a couple actors from Game of Thrones in here that, that warrant a sticker on the uh, on the retail packaging to. Uh, point that out, which is never a particularly great sign. All right, uh, we've got some uh, foreign language stuff we should uh, we should deal with, because some of it actually is rather significant, Mark. There's an interesting foreign title here this week. Um, the first one, uh, actually, very timely, Beauty and the Beast. No, not the new Disney version. This is the live-action version uh, directed in France, in French, by Christophe Gans, who lasted The Brotherhood of the Wolf a long time ago. Uh, and then he had a brief Ameri- a short American film he made, and he's made nothing since, which is weird. He was one of the most promising action directors Beauty in a long time. And he made a new French version of Beauty and the Beast, which is a little courageous because the Jean Cocteau black and white classic, which is out in Criterion, is long considered sort of the art pinnacle of the story. So he decided to be the Frenchman who tries to step into um, Cocteau's shoes. I will say this. If the Disney film comes anywhere close to the production value and the special effects and the opulence of this one, it'll be amazing. Because this, he really, really kills it. The problem here is more one of sort of tone and casting. Leah Sadu as Belle is amazing. Can I just yeah, say that? Emma Watson was not, she was fine. She was. Well, this is not musical. You know, this is a much grittier version. This is not the Disney version. This is grittier and tougher and, and follows a very, very different narrative ultimately. But Leah Sedu is amazing. I mean, amazing. She is the Belle that I have always dreamed of having. It is amazing. Um, but as the uh, the Prince and the Beast, Vincent Cassell, yeah, it's a little tough. That's a tough one for me. And I love Vincent Cassell. Tough to wrap yourself around. But anyway, this comes on Blu-ray with DVD and a uh, digital download. Not an ultraviolet digital download, just a regular digital download. Uh, and... Um, I, I really I think this is imperfect but incredibly well done. So I, I'm going to recommend it. And then uh, we've also got great classic of French cinema, Maurice Pialat's Police with Gerard Depardieu and Sophie Marceau, and of course the great Sandrine Bonaire. This is from Olive Films. Uh, good for them for picking this up. What a what a great pickup. Uh, this really is is just such a cool film from 1985, kind of a golden era of French cinema. Um, those mid-80s movies are just really, really terrific. And, uh, you know, Piala was sort of in his prime at this point, leading up to his eventual uh, Palme d'Or under the Son of Satan, which sort of marked the end of his career in many respects. But uh, anyway, it's really, really great. Depardieu plays a, uh, a really, really just tough, tough, uh, uh, you know, police detective. And uh, it just, you know, gets into this, 
really gritty kind of a drug underworld that very few French films have done very, very convincingly or effectively, frankly, until The Connection just a couple of years ago, which was my favorite film of that year. But uh, anyway, Maurice Piala's Police on Blu-ray from Olive. Great, great movie. And then um, Oscar, I'll give two more here before I turn it back over to Mark. Uh, the uh, Oscar uh, contender for Belgium was the Ardennes. Did not get a nomination, but this was at uh, uh, Toronto and a few other festivals. And um, this is the um, from the producer of Bullhead is how they promote this, which doesn't really mean much. Uh, this is a uh, kind of this doesn't really make you want to go to Belgium, to be honest. But it is. Uh, this is about two brothers, uh, Flemish brothers, and they have a have a very spotty background. You know, their mom. They live just there. They're they're kind of the the, the the scummy the scummy population of Belgium. And um, I, how do I not give uh, some crucial stuff away here? Mm-hmm. So there's a they, there's a crime that they're going to commit, and things go wrong. And they have to try to cover up for the crime, and that takes you down a rather, rather nasty, uh, labyrinthine hole of twisted events. It's very well done, very dark. Uh, comes with a short film on it called Injury Time, which is uh, also a Flemish film, and uh, has a commentary by uh, the director, Robin Pront, and actor Kevin Jansen's. And uh, a little making a featurette and then an interview. Uh, it, it, probably too dark to have gotten an Oscar nomination, but still worth watching if you don't mind movies going really, really dark and nasty at the end. We got, uh, oh, wow, what do you well, got there? Well, go ahead. I'll, I'll let you go. I, I want to spend some time on this when we get it. So carry on. All right, well, we have an uh, interesting film here that I uh, took a little look at called We Are the Flesh. It's an uh, interesting slice of... Um Mexican cinema. Now, we don't really talk much about Mexican films much anymore. I don't know why that way is that way. I don't know. Um, but anyway, this thing, it's a, uh, it's, it's got like this, it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic thing where a young, where this brother and sister, they wind up taking refuge with this strange guy who puts them to work. Mm-hmm. And it tries to be, uh, it's got a lot of, there's a lot of symbolism involved about, um, you know, power and how power corrupts absolutely. Sure. So it's kind of, I mean, other films have gone down this road before, but I kind of uh, appreciated that the director, who I had never heard of, uh, Emiliano Roca Minter, um, really took this thing in an interesting direction. I think that this guy, what might, what would be interesting is if this guy Minter, he winds up getting scooped up by, by an American studio and given like one of those big you know Godzilla films or something because he's got an interesting visual yeah. aesthetic for that that mm-hmm. kind of thing that post-apocalyptic sure. thing um, so anyway um, this thing is definitely a trip we are the flesh I would uh, definitely check it out if you're interested in uh, international cinema that is not like uh, that's a little more uh, budgetarily and thematically ambitious than just like you know two people in a favela hanging yeah. out and robbing people um all right, now let me, uh, let me get into some fun stuff here. We've got a couple from Cohen. A couple of really, really good films from Cohen. A couple of good, good Blu-ray releases from Cohen, and I like Cohen because uh, I'm completely biased. So the, uh, we've got a Benoit Jaco movie, Diary of a Chambermaid. Benoit Jaco is wonderful. Legendary French uh, director. I've, I've talked about him here before. I've interviewed him. Uh, I've done commentary on some of his films. Fantastic. This is based on a, uh, a novel by Octave Mirbeau, 
and it is a it is essentially a the story of a Parisian chambermaid who leaves Paris and uh, has to go out into the hinterlands. And what her it, it deals with all of her kind kind of um, Jane Eyreish adventures and escapades. There it is beautifully done. It is really really well put together. Uh, Benoit Jaco continues to be one of the most interesting directors uh, coming out of France, and uh, great performances by the amazing. We continue to say Leah Seydoux, who is amazing in everything she does, and Vincent Linden, who continues to surprise me by being able to do period. Um, and uh, to kind of disappear into movies in a way that I never expected him to do. I used to always think he was wooden, and he's now just this amazing, range, rangy, and very subtle actor. And then we have from Cohen three classic films by Claude Chabrol. Betty with uh, Marie Trintignant and Stéphane Audran. The uh, spectacularly cool The Swindle, starring Oscar nominee Isabelle Huppert, Wright, and Francois Clouzet, who Love. everyone loves. And then Torment, otherwise known as L'Enfer, with Emmanuel Bayard, which is uh, based on the uh, original Henri-Georges Clouseau film that was discontinued, that never really was properly finished. So uh, he took that original script and made it uh, rather extraordinarily well, very much in the Claude Chabrol vein. It's not, it, you know, it's not Clouseau's tor- uh, Torment. It is very much Chabrol's, but it is great just the same. Here's what's amazing about these three films. Could I tell you what's amazing about these three films? No. Is that uh, Torment, a.k.a. L'Enfer, and The Swindle both have awesome, awesome commentaries by Wade and Andy. That's what they have. Wow. Uh, and we did these a while ago, so I'm glad they're finally out. Uh, yeah. Uh, Andy and I sat and did uh, these two commentaries. We And I should point out that Andy and I and FX as well, we did commentaries on other Chabrol films uh, many years ago for a different company. And uh, so we are, uh, we, we, are, we are the Chabrol experts, I guess. Anyway, I always enjoy talking about Chabrol films. I think The Swindle is fantastic. Uh, Isabelle Huppert plays her usual kind of psychotic ice queen here, but she does it just so beautifully. And, uh, you know, Betty is a, is a classic as well. Three great Chabrol films. Cannot, cannot take anything away from those. I'm proud to have done the commentaries. Totally biased. Go buy it. And we have three very, very interesting ones here. I'll start off with a criterion. Mark's got another criterion over there that's uh, probably going to be more of interest. But anyway, uh, from 1978, The Tree of Wooden Clogs by the great Italian director Ermano Olmi. Olmi, a nice, restrained, poetic, almost Scandinavian-styled Italian director. Uh, this takes place in uh, just before the turn of the century. It's just a, it's just about you know working class Italian people uh, in this uh, province who are basically kind of sharecroppers. Uh, this won the Palm Door in 1978. It is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful movie. It's just heartfelt and extremely touching, and uh, it, it you know it, it feels like, almost like an Ingmar Bergman film in many respects. I just think the world of it. I think it's really, really good. One of the great films from the 70s. Uh, that's on Blu-ray from Criterion. And then we also have uh, a movie that I was really fond of. I'm getting more fond of. This is called In Order of Disappearance. Uh, this is meant to be funnier than I think it actually is. This is a, a Swedish film starring Stellan Skarsgård as a guy who basically drives a snowplow. That's basically his job. He's just a, he's just a wonderful... Um, citizen, he's winning an award you know, at the beginning of the movie for being just like citizen of the year, which is your first clue that by the end of the movie he's going to be anything but a good citizen. Because, um, you know, characters have arcs, right? 
Anyway, his son is murdered, and his son had a bit of a checkered past with drugs and hung out with some shady people, and suddenly the Citizen of the Year decides that uh, he is going to go and wreak unholy, just Bronson, Dirty Harry-type vengeance on the people responsible for his son uh, dying, which includes, you know, a... uh, which includes Serbian drug dealers and a Swedish drug kingpin who has his own very bizarre life. And uh, the In Order of Disappearance title refers to all the people that he kills, and uh, they literally count them down in the order of their disappearance because they, he leaves no trace because he's a snowplow guy. Anyway, I really enjoyed this movie. It is it is dark. It is funny. It is uh, it, it actually gets better the more you think about it. I really enjoyed it. Hans Peter Molland directed it, who of course is uh, another one of the very very fine directors working out of the uh, the Great White North these days uh, of Europe. And Spa Night from Strand, not on Blu-ray. This is on DVD only. Uh, but Spa Night is a film that takes place in L.A.'s Koreatown, and it's uh, about a very very conservative Korean family whose son is uh, coming to grips with his uh, his sexuality. He's a, he's a gay man. He's closeted. And it's, uh, you know, it's a struggle because you're in a very, very conservative community, conservative family. And this was made for next to no money. And this recent, this just on uh, about, a, you know, on Saturday before the Oscars won an award from the uh, Spirit Awards for their low, low, low budget. Uh, you know, they have a category for people who make movies that are, like, priced so low that you, you're all, you're you practically, it's less than, like, it's negative money. You you can pay in pocket change. Yeah, you're like literally people are paying you to make the movie. So, uh, or you're paying people to make the movie. What am I saying? Anyway, Spa Night won that award uh, for director Andrew Ahn, who is very very talented. It's uh, it's a little slow for me. It, it paces a little bit off, but still, he's got a good eye and he's very good with actors. So it, it will be interesting to see what he does next. More from Criterion. Um, Pedro Almodovar's breakthrough film, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. From 1988, boy, Peppa, she's just trying to pop some pills and kill herself, and she just can't. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, this is great. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's got real bite. It's a great, you know, feminist comedy. It's comedy. It's melodrama. It's just the weirdest combination of styles and over-the-top absurdism, and there's tragedy involved, and it's, it just looks great. And uh, I think this this is probably Almodovar's best film. I, I think it, it, you know it's it's it, I think it is. It, you know what it's one of people's more favorite of his more favorite. How's that? What kind of grammar is that? It is one of the more popular of his films. This, um, this is almost like if 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 this is almost like if P. T. Anderson during his his Magnolia days yeah. were to make a right. were to make a film like sure. this is what he would make. Just yep. just drunk on just its own sense of outlandish craziness and obsessive love and it's just it's just it's a madcap film it's a terrific film it's got great performances of course the blu-ray is terrific it's a 2k digital restoration you know it looks fine um there's a discussion with uh, richard pena who's a, a film scholar that was fine um new interviews with the almodovar who to my mind yes he's done good films since but he hasn't somehow the breakthrough was the one i, I just i'm not sure which of his films is better than this one um but anyway, Antonio Banderas is in this also, so I would definitely check out if you haven't seen it. Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Almodovar is a bit of a um, he. He can be a, a, an acquired taste. He can be, and uh, the the sad thing about being as good as he is and as prolific as he is is that when he makes um, 
uh, a film like he did just this last year. What was the name of his one that was? Oh, oh with uh, Penelope Cruz. No, I, no, it was the. Um, this one about the one. The, well, two yeah. actresses playing the one actress or the one uh, the one character. It's uh, Julieta. Julieta. So Julieta. Julieta. No, look. Let me tell you yeah. something. Oh, okay, you come to America. You speak our language. Okay. Thank you. This message brought to you by Donald Trump. Okay. So uh, Julieta. You make a film like Julieta, and everybody goes meh. Well, Julieta is not a meh film. Julieta is an amazing movie. It just happens to be meh by Almodovar standards because he set the, the bar so damn high that every time he comes out with a new p- film, people expect, you know, just, just flowers to just explode and uh, masterpiece to just become bleed out of every pore. But it doesn't. You know, he, sometimes he just, you know, you don't have a masterpiece in you every single time at bat. Woody Allen has the same problem. Woody Allen comes out with really amazing movies and people go, yeah, it's not really, uh, it's not really Annie Hall, is it? Well, you know, shut up. Well, don't forget too. He followed this up with "Time You Have, Time Me Down," which is uh, yeah. terrific too. Yeah. yeah, totally. Which was uh, one of the last films that sort of uh, preceded Antonio Banderas becoming a big. It's Antonio big thing. Banderas. Banderas. You Julieta. Speak English. Julieta. Or get the hell back to Mexico. Okay, so there's a Tibetan movie here. Uh, from Icarus, which is really, really interesting. I do not understand how this movie got made. Uh, I believe it is, uh, it, it, it may be Taiwanese financed. But anyway, uh, this is by a director named Pema Tseden, who obviously does not live in Tibet, who is in uh, exile somewhere. But uh, it's really, really interesting. And it takes place uh, in Tibet. Presumably, I guess they would have shot this in Nepal or somewhere adjacent. Because it, what it looks like. And uh, this is about a guy who's just uh, hes a shepherd. He's just a regular, ordinary shepherd, but a modern shepherd, right? He rides a motorcycle, and, you know, that's how he does his deal. And um, the uh, it, is, it is about his, oh, a very interesting odyssey that he takes. It's his, his grappling with the modern world. Let's put it that way. I won't tell you exactly what he has to do. Um, but it's his grappling with the modern world and uh, and how a particular relationship that is introduced to him through modernity uh, forces him onto kind of a, uh, a late life coming of age. We'll say that. Uh, anyway, it is uh, it's a very interesting film, beautifully, beautifully uh, directed, very, very well acted by uh, the uh, cast of complete unknowns and uh, the director of Payment Satan. I hope he does other things because um, you know, I hope there's more than just this one movie in him. And then Kiyoshi Kurosawa who is kind of the father of the J cinema uh, the 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 uh, J horror brand of Japanese horror cinema you know the the grudge and uh, the and ringu and all that stuff kurosawa basically was the uh, first to get that genre out of the gate he's got a new movie called uh, appropriately creepy it's creepy and the incredible thing about this movie mark it's not creepy <laughs> You were expecting me to uh, respond to the fact that the movie's called Creepy. I have not seen this film. Yeah, I know. So I don't know if it's creepy or not. Uh, well, it's too long is, is the biggest problem with it. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's good. It's a little bit more of an intellectual uh, horror film, psychological horror more than anything else. It's, it's not, you know, like uh, his early stuff. Um, but it's, it's tense. And it, you know, deals with a guy who, um, a detective who had a really bad incident uh, about a year earlier. And he's sort of trying to put his life together in the wake of this particular incident. And uh, then something happens that causes the incident of a year prior to become a factor in his life again. So, 
It gets very interesting, very psychological, very tense. It is uh, extremely well done, but don't expect J-horror. It is, it is much more of a, this is a more mature and uh, introspective style working here in the league. All right, Mark, that should do it for this week. What? Yes, that should do it for this week. Next uh, next week, we will not talk about the Oscars at all. We'll try to, right? And I have no food for you. Oh, that's all right. I'll, I'll just eat all the ice cream now. All right, we are done. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.